Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Mastermind.fm and in this episode we've got with us Mauricio Di Bartolomeo who's one of the co-founders of Leden and this is a play on the HODL meme in crypto, of course. And so we're very excited to have Mauricio with us to talk about crypto lending and borrowing. And so without further ado, Mauricio, welcome to the show and please give us an introduction about yourself and you're from Venezuela, so I'm interested to hear about that journey as well and the product itself, of course. Yeah, thank you both for having me on. It's a big pleasure. I love the opportunity. Myself, as you mentioned, I grew up in Venezuela, so I, um, I lived pretty much most of my life there until I was 17. Came to Canada when I was 17 to do my, really <laughs> to escape Venezuela <laughs> for one, but I also to do my, uh, my university. Ended up having to do grade 12 high school in Canada and also uh, ended up at the University of Western Ontario at the Richard Ivey School of Business doing the HBA program, which is where I had the luck and privilege of meeting Adam who is today the co-founder of Ledin and uh, one of my best friends. Actually, many of us at Ledin come from the Western School in Canada, and many of us actually come from other schools in Canada. But the beautiful thing about our company is actually we have people from every continent uh, joining us. And, and it's a beautiful Canadian story. A lot of us are immigrants to Canada uh, and, and find ourselves now building this business, helping people many times in our home countries which is something you don't get to do very often. So we, we both really love that, or we most of us really love that about our business. So as I said, I went to business for finance. So the, the Honors Business Administration Program at uh, the Richard Ivey School of Business. I went back to Ivy to do my MBA. And uh, after graduating, I, I did sales and marketing roles in Canada, uh, primarily um, before that, and I was in a high-rise residential real estate developer in Toronto running their uh, sales and marketing team. And um, I'll give you the synopsis version of, of uh, how I got into Bitcoin, but we can go into a very long uh, story about how that journey went down. But in short, as Venezuela was kind of going off a cliff, my whole family was still down there. I was kind of making my life in Canada, trying to pull them out. And they were trying to pull me back because they wanted the family to be together. And um, my youngest brother got into Bitcoin at around 2014. And um, I say this funny because I, I love that you guys are our father and son team. So my uh, dad actually started mining before I did. And wow. <laughs> uh, he was actually one of the reasons I got so excited is because I saw my youngest brother getting excited. Then I saw my dad getting excited about it. And I was like, what am I missing here? So I got into Bitcoin primarily through the mining part. I, that's what I started doing. That's what a lot of people started uh, doing back in Venezuela at that time because Bitcoin was so new. It was very interesting, actually, and, and thinking back to those days, when people, when Bitcoin was a, a bit lesser known, um, the concept of buying, the spending dollars to purchase that Bitcoin, this abstract thing that you have never seen, if you compare that to the concept of potentially purchasing a computer that was a hard asset that you could feel and touch and that would generate Bitcoin for you, it made people feel more comfortable because there was a tangible asset that you could see. And, and even though these things only were good to mine Bitcoin, it still gave you that sense of a physical object that, that is put somewhere. And so when, when you connected these machines and you started seeing the Bitcoin, and then over time you began transacting with Bitcoin and feeling more comfortable holding it for progressively longer periods of time, then 
you really start to understand. Like, I think a lot of times people got into mining because they were too afraid to buy Bitcoin outright. And, uh, but it's part of an evolution. So uh, once they understand that, they say, okay, well, the economics of mining really work if you're a hobbyist or if you're at scale, right? And so for many people, you know, over the last few years, there was always the thought because it felt within reach to be a sort of medium scale mine. But that idea has essentially gone out the window over the past, you know, uh, year and a half or so, just because the sheer scale that you need to make a business, a mining business profitable now has just uh, exponentially increased. So now I think what you see more of is, you know, that sort of stage process has essentially changed quite a bit. But I got I got into Bitcoin through mining. Through mining, I was also exposed to this issue that not just miners were facing, but but Bitcoin holders and Bitcoin businesses in general, which was this idea that you earn Bitcoin revenue, but to grow your business, you have to reinvest in the business. And when your treasury is made up of Bitcoin and Bitcoin is rising 20% month over month, it becomes very difficult to make that decision to sell the Bitcoin to grow the business. Many times people did that and they regretted it every single time. (laughs) Uh, And so back at that time, we started thinking, you know, for two reasons, I got very excited about the load product. For one, we thought it just made tremendous sense for anybody that had a mining business, a Bitcoin business, was getting paid in Bitcoin and believed in Bitcoin long term. The idea of putting your Bitcoin as collateral, getting a loan, while you still keep the ownership of that Bitcoin, is just placed as collateral for something else. So you can borrow the cash you need it, albeit you know, not at one-to-one, you would do 50% of, of what you left as collateral, but that collateral could appreciate. And you could use the cash to essentially continue growing the business. This was exciting to me for two reasons. One, we knew the use case. We had lived through the pain points. And when we were that client, we were essentially trying to solve our own problem. The other thing that really excited me about Bitcoin or lending against Bitcoin was in growing up in Venezuela, you grow up conditioned to get rid of your evaporating bolivares. So it's almost like it becomes second nature. You get paid, you go exchange it. You get paid, you go buy something. You get paid, you just need to get rid of them. And um, what a lot of people did, and, and I say this jokingly to some people, now that's changed, but until very shortly, I had done better financially shorting the bolivar than long Bitcoin. <laughs> and, and people say, well, how do you short the bolivar? Well, you, you short a currency by taking a loan in that currency and purchasing another asset with that currency. And essentially what you have is in Venezuela, to speak about Venezuela for a second, if you could borrow bolivares from a bank at a rate clearly sub-inflation, because inflation was in the millions and thousands percent annualized, and, and banks had a mandate because of the government to be able to deploy certain amounts at, say, 10%, 20% in Bolivar terms. So anybody that could get access to these loans, which by the way, wasn't a lot of people, but I, ha- I was lucky that I was one of them. We could take these loans, buy dollars with these loans, wait for inflation to do its thing, and literally convert back a fraction of those dollars to repay the whole thing and then do it all over again. And the American version of this is called a mortgage. With a mortgage, you're essentially taking out a ginormous short position on the U.S. dollar, 
or the Canadian dollar, whatever that may be, and you're buying a house with it. And this trade does so well for Americans that they can double down on their short every three or four years. They call this a refinancing. And they purchase a different house and they set up a new short position on their dollar backed by their house. With those two things in mind, and also my the, the benefit that my business partner, Adam, had spent the last 10 years financing solar energy projects. So he had seen that life cycle of when it was a very new technology, the banks weren't getting involved. They, it, it took them a really long time to understand it. But five years later, the banks were like killing each other to be on these deals because they were desperate for a yield. And so we saw a great opportunity to create a company that could raise capital from these very well capitalized institutions with very low cost of capital, and then use Bitcoin as the collateral asset to issue loans to people, not just in Canada, but all over the world at great rates because Bitcoin, for the first time in a long time, you get to standardize the collateral. And for the first time in a really long time, the risk profile from someone in Canada for as a loan becomes the same risk profile as someone in Mexico. And Bitcoin really enabled that. That couldn't happen until Bitcoin. And so we, we were just incredibly excited about this opportunity. And uh, you know, a, very shortly after starting to build the mine in Canada and nobody giving us a loan, we said, we need to solve our own problem. And so we, we put together the team, uh, we raised our seed round, and we issued Canada's first Bitcoin back loan in November 2018. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for the comprehensive introduction. And what I love about it is how organic the progression is, no? Because I think mining is a great way to learn about how Bitcoin really works. Plus, you are living in a situation where you felt the actual pain of having your monetary system being inflated so, so rapidly. And a lot of people in the in Western society have not felt that pain. Maybe it's theoretical, it's out there, it's happening, what we don't know about it. But what you described is very real. And that's a totally different story. So I, I love I love that. Uh, I, I don't love that it happened, but <laughs> I, I, I think it's a great learning experience for you and you were able and you are lucky to be able to to make it into something positive. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. I was just going to say, uh, that, you know, we have we have more products. <laughs> uh, we, we've built we've built more products since. But to, just to kind of go through what we yeah. offer today, so Bitcoin Back Long was our flagship product. It was what we went to market for. Is is primarily what we're known for. From there on, we started getting people contact us and, and saying, "I really love your platform. I love your transparency. I love what you're doing. I don't really need a loan right now, but I would love to earn interest on my Bitcoin uh, if you could make that happen." And right around the time, we started getting institutions approaching us and saying, hey, you guys have Bitcoin collateral for these loans. You know, would you ever consider lending it? And, uh, and so Adam and I looked at each other. And we're like, well, we weren't really thinking about doing that. But what if we created a savings account? And we let people put money or Bitcoin that they want to earn interest on. And then we match that with institutions that want to borrow that Bitcoin to, to essentially work out to use it as working capital and so that's when we created the, the bitcoin savings account so that was the first bitcoin savings account in canada actually one of the first savings accounts in the world uh, i think one of our competitors beat us to it by like a week to do the first one ever but um we we were there very shortly after we were working on them actually in parallel and so we launched a bitcoin savings account that did really really well for us from there we started seeing that a lot of our clients were using our loans to buy more bitcoin 
and uh, they would come back with the Bitcoin that they purchased to take another loan, and they would do this over and over again until they reached the minimum loan amount. And so we said, well, if people want these loans to buy more Bitcoin, let's just create a product that does this in a very simple way for you. And we created the product called B2X, which is a product that doubles your Bitcoin with a letting Bitcoin back loan on the, on the background. So if you send a Bitcoin, we lend you enough dollars to purchase a second Bitcoin. Both of those Bitcoins get basically remain in lead in custody until you pay out the outstanding dollar amount. And what that does is it, it multiplies your, your Bitcoin, the amount of Bitcoin you hold through a Bitcoin back loan. So that's B2X, that's our most popular loan product today. After that, a lot of our clients in Latin America started asking us for options to um, save in stable coins. They really love this idea of having a dollar format savings account that wasn't as volatile as perhaps Bitcoin was. And so we launched a USDC savings account. And um, today, those are our main core products. Um, we are, uh, we've actually finished building the option to trade between your savings accounts, but that is getting rolled out on a market-by-market -market basis. Uh, and right now we're actually um, starting in Colombia and then moving upwards based on regulatory, et cetera. Excellent. And yeah, we're, we're going to talk about the B2X for sure. And so, as usual, there's my dad with us on the podcast, and hello, he did a lot of research actually about the the platform, and he's been getting into Bitcoin, evaluating all the the options out there. So I'm gonna pass the mic over to him for some questions to dig deeper into what you already described, basically. Hello, Mauricio. Uh, it's very nice to have you on our show. Uh, Mauricio, you started, you said, in 2014, taking interest in Bitcoin, and we have seen um, the Bitcoin going up and down. You've been through the thick and thin of it. When the situation was bad, let's face it, there was a, a big drop. How did you keep faith in it and why? And what do you think about the future? Because Many people still think that uh, this is a bit of a bubble again that uh, will blow up at a certain point. Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. So why do I keep faith in Bitcoin? I think the way I've built so much conviction in, in what Bitcoin is and the future that it can have is really having lived through the collapse of a monetary system and, and really understanding the fiat system, I find that there is a almost one-to-one -one correlation between people that really understand inflation and people that get Bitcoin. Inflation is a, is a concept that is somewhat simple on the surface, but very difficult to understand. Understand really how it impacts you. Venezuela, even though it has been ravaged by hyperinflation, if you poll 10 people on the street today and ask them what inflation is, you would get nine wrong answers, probably 10. Because when inflation happens, the government does everything in its power to push the narrative to society that the problems that they are seeing in the economy are not due to the monetary printing. They are due to something else. It is a perfect example of this is you see right now that home prices are skyrocketing across Canada and the US. And if you look at the headlines, none of the headlines reference the fact that there's been trillions of dollars printed in the last two years. What they reference is that there are institutions and hedge funds that are pricing out the average American. And that's a direct quote from the New York Times. 
And it's not these evil institutions. <laughs> these evil institutions are just rational market participants. And what keeps my faith in Bitcoin, regardless of what the chart does, is looking at the monetary supply charts of every country, literally every country. They do this. And if you look at home prices, when has the house price bubble ever bursted and not gone back up? And so you can't put money back in the bag. <laughs> you can only print more money. And that's why I think Bitcoin is an inevitability almost. It's going to depend not so much on whether Bitcoin succeeds or not. It's going to depend on how quickly people can really understand inflation and really understand that their way out of inflation is to buy a hard asset. The savings trap that exists around the world, to me, is probably one of the things that's most wrong with the world today. And, and what do I mean by that? And I put this question back to you both. What, in your view, are the assets that withhold their value against inflation? Well, uh, talking about Malta and many other European countries, mainly it's property, removable property. How many people can afford that property? Well, talking about Malta, the prices have skyrocketed. The island uh, is small, therefore land uh, is scarce. But even going to bigger countries, the prime sites are very expensive, obviously, because everybody wants to be there. Therefore, I would think that movable property uh, is the most sought after to protect, to hedge against inflation. But And that's the thing. What percentage of the population generally speaking, has access to purchase property? We have seen situations where uh, people have either pulled down their house, a terraced house or a villa, and built a four-story uh, block of apartments. Or else um, uh, they've been investing in property companies, buying smaller shares that maybe they can afford, or buying even a garage, <laughs> worth 30,000 euros, uh, $50,000 in that range. And even that, for them, is peace of mind that at least, um, as Jean said, uh, the the inflation is not going to eat up their savings. I guess, what's the gap between what you earned when you bought your house and what a normal person earns now and the, the price of a house now? I think that's no, grown no, they're bigger. out of step. They're out of step. I mean, there is no correlation. The, the thing is that property uh, with so many foreigners coming to Malta and with so mobility in the European Union, for example, with so much mobility, Jean, for example, um, went from Malta to Spain. Demand for good properties has increased, even with the economic rebound that we had witnessed before COVID. Now it has to be seen because COVID is another phenomenon that is affecting everyone. And actually, I wanted to to ask you, uh, Mauricio, what was the impact on your business of COVID? Because it's something that we need to think about. And what we expect in terms of the effect of COVID on the cryptocurrencies. Now, the cryptocurrencies, in my opinion, Whoever is holding cryptocurrencies now is privileged, in my opinion. And I would dread to think that going forward, there will be a bit of class hatred. Those who own cryptos and those who don't. Jealousy, 
you know they can start clamoring for tax to be imposed on on uh, big profits and all that therefore i think that the world would be a much happier place if cryptos will be explained to everyone because what's happening is that in in many countries People are withholding information, actually. They're not encouraging cryptos, possibly because they feel that they can lose control. As as you said, I mean, when the governments uh, start feeling that they are losing control on the economies of their own countries, maybe they don't like it and they start putting barriers. And one question that I had for you is, how do you see the situation panning out in the near future. Do you think that this momentum will continue uh, with institutional investors buying uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies? That eventually the big institutions and the banks will uh, embrace Bitcoin. And if that happens, do you think that your organization would be swallowed up by the banks or there would still be space for it? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I, you have a question on COVID and, and you have the question on, on the momentum, but maybe I'll tackle this, the momentum one, you know, most recent, or I'll tackle that one first and then we can go on to the COVID. As far as the momentum, to me, it's only accelerating. And the, the, and, and because, the reason that's happening is because there's a very interesting phenomenon happening in the United States where they're printing trillions of dollars of stimulus Inflation is nowhere to be seen on Main Street. There's CPI is still at ridiculous levels for whatever CPI is worth. But asset prices are skyrocketing. Prices in the Hamptons, the Hamptons for houses, doubled over 2020. Homes in the United States are getting purchased within one week of being listed. And the prices are soaring. If you look at the yield on the 10-year bond in the United States, it has been skyrocketing. People expect inflation. Sophisticated investors expect inflation. And the very interesting thing about this is that asset price inflation is happening faster than the consumer inflation. So it's affecting the rich people way more than it's affecting the normal average person in the United States. So you, you're having right now, even though Bitcoin is a wealth preservation tool for people of any size. The ones that are waking up to it the quickest are the ones most hurt by inflation right now, asset price inflation. And you are seeing corporate treasuries running to Bitcoin because they see that their dollar rally, their, their dollar stack is a melting candle. And they are very smart. They are very sophisticated. And they understand because they are paid to understand faster. <laughs> Their whole job, there are entire teams around corporate treasury boards that whose sole responsibility is to maximize the value of that treasury. Any human, any individual has their job, their family, their personal life, their love life. And then on top of that, you have to be a financial manager. And so the, the bandwidth that you have to really try to understand inflation is not the same as if you had a board of seven world-class professionals studying how to protect each other from inflation. So of course they're gonna to get to the answer faster than Joe on the street. And you're seeing this play out. You know, for a person to make a decision to allocate a part of their wealth to Bitcoin, non-issue. To get a publicly traded listed company 
to accept an allocation of treasury to Bitcoin is a process that takes six to eight months. And, and you need to get buy-in from basically your board of directors, everyone else. So what this tells me, and also, by the way, another thing that I witnessed in Venezuela was that the first people that got into Bitcoin in Venezuela weren't your average Venezuelan person. It was people that understood English because all the content was in English. It was people that had a computer because that's the only way you could get the information. It was people that would travel. So it started out at the very top. But you know what people do? They learn. And you know who people like to emulate? The wealthy, successful people. And so when they see somebody doing something, they'll go emulate, right? When Tesla buys Bitcoin for its balance sheet, that creates an immediate meeting in General Motors, Ford, General Electric. Like, you know, it's a cascading effect that it has. And so it creates this institutional FOMO. And they are the deepest pockets. They are a club like anyone else. They suffer from groupthink just like everyone else. And they are now bought into Bitcoin. I think personally that that leads everything else. And people will emulate that. It's much more likely for Tesla to purchase an allocation to Bitcoin and for millions of people to say, wow, that's a great example. I'm going to go buy some Bitcoin. Then if thousand people that you know are you know don't have a a platform by Bitcoin, nobody will find out. So I, I do think that this is the beginning of a trend that will continue to trickle down. And the reason that institutions are going to likely continue to buy Bitcoin is the same reason I've been in love with Bitcoin since I discovered it. Uh, it's the principle. It's math. It's literally programmatic money. And when you have a money that has a finite supply into infinity and you pair that up against monies that have infinite supplies until infinity, the chart's going to look upwards and to the right, no matter how you slice it. Yeah. Just to add my two cents on this, to tie up what you were both saying, I think if there ever was a time to be bullish on, on Bitcoin, it was during the COVID period, no? because if you had even a minimal interest in assets and you are looking at where you can invest your money, you've seen all the hard assets shoot up in value. Okay, the CPI hasn't changed that much. So technically, according to the government, there's not really a lot of inflation, but I've been looking at assets. You've seen the stock market, you've seen the property market, everything's crazy. So the solution is you can either join the bandwagon with the stock market and real estate. Again, not, not so easy to enter real estate. Stock market, I don't want to be a stock picker. And to me, Bitcoin is way less volatile in, in my way of thinking, way less risky than a stock, any stock. So I think it's pretty obvious, not to everyone, not to the majority maybe, but to all those who have been looking at assets, the, the use case has been very obvious during the past year. And if anyone is interested in listening to the podcast to learn more about this topic, I think they can pick any interview of Michael Saylor and you've got a masterclass <laughs> on this topic, really. Well, talking about inflation, I think that uh, what will happen now, once COVID is controlled to some extent, hopefully <laughs> a great extent, 
we will see inflation soaring again. Once the economy starts picking up, inflation will go up. I completely agree with what you said. I think the only thing holding inflation back right now is monetary velocity. So if, if you look at monetary velocity, so how quickly the dollar changes hands from one person to the other, velocity is, is at a historic lows. And that's because nobody can leave their house. Nobody can buy things. If you look at the savings rate in the United States, it has the highest it's ever been. Those two things combined, when you unleash monetary velocity back, there's a perfect cocktail for inflation, 100%. Mauricio, many people my age, um, as I said, I'm 65 years old, have worked hard throughout their lives to save enough money to live comfortably. Um, and they know that life expectancy uh, is increasing. Therefore, they have saved for the rainy day. And they are very much concerned about this issue of inflation. On the other hand, although they are trying to understand uh, Bitcoin and all the cryptocurrencies, since this is something intangible, they are still being a bit sceptical. They think that they have to be IT gurus to, to go into it. They are afraid to hold a wallet at home because um, they think that somebody might knock at their door and drop them off of this wallet or they, they might lose it and lose everything. And they are wondering what can be done. And okay, I have well there, but I'm not earning anything on it. Okay, there is capital gain, but I I'm not earning a regular income for a pensioner. If he doesn't sell the cryptos, he would like to, to have a regular income. Therefore, your company, what kind of peace of mind? Because um, this is a critical question. Okay, I buy Bitcoin, I give it to you. Like going to the bank with cash, I deposit it with you. I am still the ultimate beneficial owner of that Bitcoin, but it is in your hands. Therefore, it's like giving you cash and you give me an IOU, more or less. Therefore, I do have the title. But what peace of mind do people get that couple of years time, something happens and everything goes bust? Therefore, who is the custodian? Is it separate from your company? That's the first question. And I know that you do this. Is there any insurance against any loss? What do I do? to get it back quickly if I want to buy something with it and I cannot wait. If you can elaborate, um, I think uh, many people would, would uh, like to listen to comfort words from an expert like you that in reality, it's not that difficult. Yeah, so you know, there's many ways to answer the question, but to give you the sort of high level, you know, why most of our clients love working with us and, and, and what we feel has resonated with clients of, of any age, really. So Bitcoin in crypto in general has a bit of an ethos of programmatic money, right? Uh, it, I think, you know, in Venezuela growing up and in many places in Latin America, money is still pretty much a people business. You know, you know, your banker, you like, you know, you, you want to call your financial advisor. You, you want to know what they're doing. You want to talk to somebody to explain over the strategies. You have questions like the ones you just asked. How do you mitigate risk? How is this affecting you? So people like having a support center that they can call and they can get their questions answered. That's not very common 
in crypto platforms in general, but that's something that we we take very seriously. So our, our support team, we take pride in answering most tickets within one hour, all tickets within 24 hours. And uh, in, in, the cli- in, this, in the countries where we do have our services available, in most cases, those services are available entirely in your language. So one interesting thing that I see or a trend that I see in, in crypto is, you know, everybody wants to bank the unbanked, right? But everybody wants to do this building iPhone, iOS 12 apps and putting their platforms up in English. Well, most unbanks don't have iPhones and most unbanks don't speak English. So there's a huge disconnect between what you say you want to do and what you actually end up doing. From very early on, when you're entering into Bitcoin and you're outside of an OECD country, it's nine times out of 10 a nerve wracking experience because you're running to get rid of your the, you know, burning cash and the government makes it very hard for you typically to buy anything that preserves its value. So dollars, they make it hard to buy. Houses, they make it hard to buy. You start collecting rice they call you uh, somebody that was taking undue amounts of rice and bidding up the price of rice, and then you're a, you're a criminal against the state and they take your rice. So it's a very scary process. Bitcoin is a very new technology. And when you mix money with scary, with tech, you get this like perfect trifecta of incredible fear. And the way we wanted to tackle that is by, one, making it, very simple, very clean. This is what you do with Ledin. You get your Bitcoin, you earn interest, you can take a loan and or you can double your Bitcoin. That's it. You can't, you know, we're not selling you tokens or you don't need to buy this to get that. You need to get buy this to get a different rate. We, we, we think that that confuses people. And so for one, we have a support center and we'll answer these questions every day you have them. Anytime you want to just feel comfortable that we're still there, feel free to call us. As far as the custodian and the operations side of thing, the best thing that we can do as operators is identify the risks that we see that could play out and hedge those risks or protect ourselves and our clients from those risks. So let's talk, you know, we can break them down one by one, but the main ones we can talk about, you know, custody. Okay. We use a third-party custodian. We use Bitgo, who's actually the first qualified custodian in the world for digital assets. And they are they have a qualified custodian designation out of the United States. So that's who we work with. Essentially, when you send Bitcoin to Ledin, it lands at Bitgo. We then aggregate it and send it to our, lender, our institutional counterparties. While it's in Bitgo, it's most likely in a cold storage facility. And that cold storage facility is covered by a $100 million insurance policy by Lloyds of London. Nothing has ever happened to BitGo. There have been no claims on that insurance. So, you know, what we know is that it has the, they are the first qualified student in the world. They have the strongest and most comprehensive insurance policy in the world, underwritten by Lloyds of London. So uh, that gives us comfort on their operationals in their custody. To basically access or move any funds from Lenin, there is a multiple check that no one person at Lenin could ever move any, any, anything. So, we have our internal multi-sigs to even transfer those out to our institutional counterparties. And then as far as who we're working with, we tell our clients who we are working with. So the institution that we lend the Bitcoin to is Genesis Capital. And Genesis Capital is owned by the Digital Currency Group. The Digital Currency Group owns Coindesk, owns Genesis Trading, registered broker-dealer in the United States, owns the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is about to surpass the gold ETF for the first time ever. Uh, so it's the most popular Bitcoin product in the listed market. 
and they are by and large the most established, best capitalized, and with the best reputation lending institution in the game. And that's who we work with for our Bitcoin savings accounts. So we were very candid in letting our clients know how we are approaching these risks, how we are addressing these risks, because we think that's the best thing that we can do. And that's how we've addressed it. And that's how we've been building trust. The other thing that we do differently is we're the only lending company, to my knowledge, in the world to actually have done a proof of reserves attestation with a certified public accountant and consulting firm, Armonino LLP. So every six months, Armonino LLP comes to Lenin, assisted by management. All client information is kept confidential and private, but they get to see how many assets clients have with us at the Lenin plan. And then they get to see how much assets we have at each of our counterparties. So our lending counterparty, our custody counterparty, and our trading counterparty. And they tally all those things up and they prove that from an accounting standpoint, we have more Bitcoin than what we owe our clients. And if you are a Lenin client, every six months that we do this, you get what's called a hashed ID. You take that hashed ID and you don't go to Lenin. You go to the public accountant's website and you input your hash ID, and that third-party website will give you to the Satoshi and to the cent the balance that you had in the Lenin platform at the time of the attestation. And uh, what that, the comfort that that gives our clients is that from an accounting standpoint, you can be sure that we're accounting for your assets properly. That does not get rid of the counterparty risk of what happens if Bitco, you know, what happens if anything happens to Bitco, what happens if anything happens to Genesis. That's a different risk. But from an accounting standpoint, you can at least be certain that we're doing what we said we're doing. Uh, that's that's excellent. Um, Mauricio, are you publishing your financial statements? We are not yet. We're a private company, but we do plan to be a lot more open about our metrics in the very short future. Um, yeah, people would appreciate transparency and um, how much you're earning or, because they wouldn't like to see a company which is struggling, you know, to keep afloat, obviously. Um, they would like to see you progressing and, and, and flourishing, as I see it. Um, with regards to data protection and confidentiality, you touched slightly on this subject. What kind of guarantee can somebody get uh, that, you know, the Canadian government or the US government wouldn't ask you? For a list of uh, Bitcoin holders, where they are, how much did they gain, and all that? Yeah, that's a great question. So first, I want to touch on the, our our financial integrity, uh, which we're we're incredibly proud of, and I wanted to give you maybe some some data points that you can take away uh, so that people feel more comfortable. So, Ledit is a profitable company. We've been a profitable company for, for a while. We're not a burning candle as, as we're running out of runway. Uh, we, we make more than we need to run the business every month, quite above that, actually. And we just closed a round, I believe it was two and a half months ago now, which was the, the round that was led by White Star Capital. And uh, that round, we had a great group of investors come into let in. So the round was $2.7 million and was led by White Star Capital with participation from Susquehanna, CMT Digital, Coinbase Ventures. Kingsway Capital and then, oh, and Global Founders Capital out of Europe. They, they are the ones that, that behind Rocket Internet. So we are very proud of our financial position. We're growing our team quite a bit, and we're you know we'll have some very interesting announcements 
on that front very soon, probably in, in a couple months' time. I wanted to address that before moving into the data privacy question. Data privacy at Ledin is something that we probably take more seriously than any one of our competitors. We don't share client data with third parties. We are incredibly protective of exposing our client data in any way. For us, client data is as valuable as Bitcoin. It really has almost the same impact because you don't want, it's just a, it's a huge privacy breach if anybody were ever to find out that you are even a letting client. So um, we, we take that very, very seriously. Perhaps to our detriment, that is something that a couple of our competitors are more aggressive with because you inevitably need to share some data to market the clients and to you know, sell different things or you know, promote in different ways. And we've been very slow to really, uh, we just haven't wanted to share our client data. So an easy example of this is the affiliate program. So most companies or some companies, a lot of them use these third-party affiliate programs. And these third-party affiliate programs kind of take the hassle from you as a company to having to manage and build a website and create all the data tracking and showing and displaying all this data. They'll do all this for you with the small caveat that they need access to your backend. And uh, while some of our competitors have said, oh yeah, no problem, you know, here, use, use these guys. I won't name names for privacy, but most of the most popular affiliate platforms, let's say, work under this format. So you'll do this and the affiliate will say, oh, this is great, right? And, and because people think of Quick today, and for me, they don't think, oh, well, how is this affiliate program getting this information? How does this not become another trusted third party that if hacked, could have same issues? There have been issues in our industry where some of our competitors leak personal information from marketing websites. It's actually the most common way to leak data is, is a, a marketing team that or a marketing platform that got compromised. And so we've been incredibly conservative as to how we approach that. We love building our own tech. That's what enables us to issue loans as low as we do and as efficiently as we do. So we have no issue taking a little bit longer, but doing it in a way that we're more comfortable. And I, and I think you had a follow-on question, but I, it's slipping my mind right now. Well, actually, I forgot about it, if there was one. <laughs> but uh, you seem to be a very much self-regulated company, which uh, is great. People appreciate um, regulation, even though it can be tedious, cumbersome, costly. But I ask you, um, are you regulated um, by the government of Canada? Do you fall under the U.S. in some way? Yeah, that's a great question. So in Canada, which is our home country, we're regulated very much like a fintech, uh, not like a bank. So we fall under the Money Service Business Act, and that is uh, the, the main regulator or the body that oversees this is called FinTrack in Canada. It's the equivalent of FinCEN in the United States. So today, Ledin is a virtual currency money service business under FinTrack. And anyone listening can go on our website it's clear, it's, our license is listed at the bottom. You can click on our link and it'll take you to the FinTrack website where you see Lettuce application. We actually have been very encouraged by what we are seeing out of Canadian regulators. There's actually a plan that comes into effect in, on Monday, in fact, that is, you know, the, the Canadian regulators have kind of come together to provide a two-year timeline for crypto companies to essentially become regulated, not just under FinTrack, but under whatever other 
regulator you may have to fall into. The problem is that for a long time, regulators have been trying to jam crypto into existing regulation frameworks. And that's like trying to jam a square into a circle. You know, the real answer is you have to create a new program around this, but they have so much happening that it really was hard for them to, to say, okay, at what point do we pull the brakes and say, let's create a custom framework for this new industry. It's, it's a big lift and, and it's got some political risks to it, to the people that are trying to push for it. But I think right now you're seeing the sort of the, the last drop that spilled the glass over because politicians are looking at the, at the market capitalization of these assets at $2 trillion. And they are saying, we can no longer ignore this. The market capitalization of Bitcoin is bigger than Canada's M1 money supply. You can no longer ignore this. I'm very encouraged by the steps. We are a pro-regulation company. We think the only way that we can will be continue, that we'll be able to continue interacting with the pensions and the institutions that have the lowest cost of capital is by being a regulated company. And so uh, we're very encouraged by this process. We will likely be most likely be regulated under a different format or a new format, you know, in 12 months time. And we want to be participants in helping create that framework, because that's the other thing. We as industry participants know more about this space than the regulators. The regulators just want to protect consumers and they have to walk the line between enabling operators like ourselves to continue being innovative, to continue to attract assets into Canada and clients into Canada, but at the same time, protecting their local constituents. So we want to be at the table when these new frameworks are being discussed. Oh. Actually, I remembered what I what I asked you. <laughs> I will come to another question later. Uh, I was asking you whether you can see the possibility that the government of Canada or the government of the United States, through their tax authorities, can impose on companies like yours to disclose your clients. So again, it's the answer that it is. So as a regulator company, if our regulator comes to us and says we we request this information. And if they are requesting information that is pertaining to their jurisdiction. So if the Canadian regulator asks us, we won't, you know, we're concerned about X or Y Z account because they are Canadian and we feel like you know we need to we need to see this this for X or Y reason, then we at Lenin would have to comply with that request for information. Now it's probably a better question for our legal team, but I doubt that there would be a scenario where a government of, for example, Canada would be approaching Lenin to try to obtain information from somebody not in Canada. I find that scenario hard to believe unless that local regulator, wherever it may be, contacted the Canadian regulator and through the Canadian regulator, they approached Lenin. So it's something that is definitely possible. How likely is that to happen? I'm honestly, I'm not sure. But what we say to our clients is that we are a fully above board company. We allow them all the tools they need to properly do their taxes and properly report where they have a lead in. We're not trying to encourage anybody to try to dodge their local regulator. We're in fact trying to give them the tools to satisfy whatever requirements may be imposed on them, but at the same time, giving them a much better tool. Like you're being able to access a world-class service in Canada. Perhaps you are somebody that's in Mexico but you're getting a much better rate, much better customer service, your data is protected better. And sure, you have to pay a bit of tax at the end of the day because you made some money. Well, hopefully that's not the end of the world. 
Well, I see many people who are a bit afraid that they might be associated with criminal activity, you know, with money laundering or purchases of weapons or drugs, etc. Therefore, the anti-crypto lobbyists harp on, on, on these issues. And sometimes they scare off people from buying cryptos because uh, people wouldn't want to be associated with an investigation, for example, because they have uh, cryptos, they might be asked questions and all that. Therefore, do you think that uh, the increase in regulation will start weeding out these uh, doubts? And uh, what would happen? What Can somebody who really wants to uh, you know, participate in criminal activity, would he be traced? How do you see it uh, going forward? Yeah, it's a great question. So to me, that's a bit of a misconception. It's a huge urban myth. It's, it's, I see it almost as the government's, you know, when home prices are going up, the governments are going out and saying, it's these evil hedge funds, guys. It's these evil pensions. It wasn't because we printed money. No, you're not, you know, you're not being able to buy a house because we printed money. You're not being able to buy a house because these hedge funds are now buying them and they are evil and we're going to make them pay. And I see this idea of, you know, hey, guys, our money isn't broken. Our monetary system is totally fine. That monetary system is used by losers and, you know, and, and criminals and don't use that. And it's speculators. And it's a way from the governments to essentially delay the inevitable. And the inevitable is when people came out with the Internet, a lot of people thought that it was going to be pornography and pirate music and pornography and, and rampant violations of copyrights. Does that is that a part of the internet today? A small part of the internet, very small part of the internet. Has the internet empowered millions of lives across the world? You and the three of us today are talking from three different parts of the world in real time because of the internet. And I think it's a similar case for Bitcoin, where sure you can scream at a bad apple because they're doing something bad. Bitcoin, by the way, is terrible technology to do bad things <laughs> because you can get traced all the way back. And if the second you make an exchange between a particular address and the fiat world and somebody tags you, they can go all the way back and see what you did. And so a smart criminal would not be using Bitcoin. A smart person that really understands what this technology is capable of doing. In fact, law enforcement and money laundering enforcement loves Bitcoin for that same reason. It's much easier to track a Bitcoin transaction than a cash transaction. The FBI has been censoring addresses left, right, and center, OFAC. And they're looking at this. And it's actually easier to catch bad guys using Bitcoin than it is to catch bad guys using cash. And I, I find that fascinating because to me, it's, it's um, you know, when you get a government like Turkey, I don't know if you guys saw recently Turkey banned all cryptocurrencies. Why do you think that is? Do you think they're really trying to protect their constituents? Just uh, protecting the outflow, total outflow from their own money. Yeah. They're protecting yeah, their scorecard. Protect. Yeah, yeah. Their scorecard because inflation is the scorecard on your regime. It's the scorecard on your mandate. Inflation is an economic phenomenon. Hyperinflation is a political phenomenon. A lot of people don't get that. Inflation will happen. Hyperinflation will happen if your constituents lose faith in your ability to run the country. So um, you know, do I think there's going to be hyperinflation in the United States? I very much doubt it. Because 
the system itself still works. There's faith that the system will correct itself. Turkey does not have that anymore. Hasn't had that for years. And same, same with Venezuela. These are, I, I hate to say it, but I just feel so passionately about this. These are criminals, literally criminals that are running a country. And because they have this badge that says government, when they do something, the people have to assume immediately that this is done in their best interest. I've lived under governments that very clearly did not have the interests of their constituents in mind. I've seen buildings and farms get nationalized, get expropriated on national television with, with a snap of a finger. To me, and, and populism is a fascinating thing because you have people in the background not understanding what was happening. All people see, and that's the issue, what, that's why printing money is so easy, is because government runs into an issue, they'll say, well, don't worry, guys. It's like, we didn't raise any more taxes. We're just going to print it and fix it. And the people that understand what that does say, wait a second, I'm not going to be left holding this hot potato that you're going to print. I'm, I need to trade out of this stat yesterday. And what does the government do? Whoa, whoa, guys, hold on. You can't do that. If you do that, then we look bad. You should look bad. <laughs> you just screwed up. <laughs> so it's fascinating. You know, I, there's no right answer for this. But I think that a lot of it is just games that governments play to stay in power. Uh, let, let me, because you mentioned the fact that Bitcoin is easy to trace. So now we're seeing maybe one of the bigger problems that many people are not thinking about is the question of taint, where governments can force certain exchanges or even institutions like yourselves to not accept certain Bitcoin and accept other Bitcoin. Have you seen this already? And as a lender myself, if I lend money to Leden, how am I guaranteed not to receive tainted Bitcoin? That would then be hard to transfer to an exchange, for example. And secondly, I just wanted to mention that the banking system is broken, even in Western countries like Malta, for example, which almost all banks prevent people from sending money to and from exchanges or even services like yourselves, which to me, in a weird way, is a bullish thing, because once that falls, you're going to see so many people join the club. So just wanted to put it out there as well, because I think some, especially Americans, might not realize how much of a problem this is with banks in, in other countries, and not only Malta. I know that in the UK is the same thing. Most other countries have the same problem in Europe. The way banks approach crypto is is obviously very funny because they, you know, I, I wasn't expecting banks all over the world to embrace them right away because they have been built on the fiat system. And this is literally a challenger rail of value transfer. And they're not going to go down without a fight. And that's what you're seeing today. They're, they're trying to impose these restrictions. They're trying to delay the inevitable, really, uh, which is what they don't see. The smart banks are reaching out to us for partnerships. <laughs> There's all types of banks. There are banks that are actually loving what we are doing 
and very interested in what we're doing. There are banks in the United States that are doing a similar, a similar activity that we are, Silvergate. So all banks are certainly not created equal. And I think you're going to see, again, this Cambrian explosion of positive collaboration between crypto fintechs and banks over the next little bit. And that's going to be the people playing a part in that are going to be the smartest banks, the smartest fintechs, and the smartest crypto companies. Because they see that these two worlds won't necessarily replace each other. They are most likely to converge into one once that balance is struck. But it's that striking of that balance. That process is going to be iterative. It's going to, you know, it's not going to be a straight line. So I, I do think that you're going to see a lot more of that, especially now with Coinbase going public at almost $100 billion valuation. They are Goldman Sachs is a $113 billion company. There are only 83 companies in the S&P 500 bigger than Coinbase. The sheer scale cannot be ignored. And to touch on your point about tainted coins. So right now, so as a regulated company, again, we have to check out all sanctions lists, OFAC, UN, you name it. And OFAC does have a list of sanction addresses now. We haven't seen that. It's a very small list of addresses. And obviously, people that are on those lists are very rarely to transact with those addresses. So we haven't seen that come up yet. But as they become more sophisticated, I mean, the, the regulators do, I do see a world where this, this list may expand itself as they identify more people. Now, what they need to do as well, and I'm pretty sure they are working on this, if you look at the Wyoming Bank Charter, there's a way of cleansing coins. So, uh, for example, in the Wyoming uh, legislation, and I, I have to double check on this to make sure I'm not misspeaking, but I'm pretty sure that if you send, and this is not necessarily from a, from a sanction standpoint, but from a lien standpoint. So if you own a Bitcoin and you took out an unsecured loan from your bank and your bank wanted to write a PPSA or a, a personal security agreement that says, hey, you know, uh, we are Bank X and we lent Jan $60,000, but we have carved out the possession or the first right or the lien on his Bitcoin that is in this address, right? So that you have a lien on that Bitcoin. So what the state of Wyoming is doing is if your Bitcoin is held at a Wyoming institution and it passes a certain time there, I believe it's six months, then it's deemed to be lien free. And so they're, they're creating these mechanisms, and, and the U.S. is really at the forefront of this, which is ironic, but they are really smart, and they understand that if they create the framework to let Bitcoin companies blossom, they'll accumulate the world's Bitcoin on those platforms, and they are moving very fast to do that, very smartly. We want Canada to do the same. We don't want to be left behind. And so... I guess to, to answer your question, I guess it's short, is we're not seeing too much of that yet because, again, it's a, it's a very small subset of activity. But I do see a future where that expands and we have to become more uh, sophisticated in tracking those uh, issues as well. It's the on-chain equivalent of KYC, right, is, is knowing who you're dealing with, you're doing business with. Yeah, I mean, this has been fascinating. I want to bring the discussion back to, to the products, the three products. And... I know my dad has some bullet point questions on on borrowing, on lending, on, on B2X. So do you want to fire those away yeah. and have Mauricio go through them? Yeah, um, I noticed that the interest rate that you offer on uh, Bitcoin 
you quote six percent, but recently there has been a, a development uh, in this. Can you please explain what happened and why it happened, and how do you see it uh, going forward in terms of interest rate that one can get on Bitcoin? Absolutely. I'll try to keep this an answer as succinct as I can because it's a it's a very it's a process or it's a question that touches many things that are happening. So, in short. The main crux of this change in rates is driven by two things, or two trends. One, there is an exponential, uh, ex an amount that's growing exponentially of people that want to earn interest on their Bitcoin. And they are essentially, platforms like ourselves and companies that do similar operations are growing at rates that are, are just neck-breaking. We need to deploy these Bitcoin to pay the interest. There is the supply is rocketing for the institutions that want to borrow these Bitcoins to do these activities. The other piece of that is institutions also caught sight of what's happening and they are arbitraging all these market neutral trades. So in Bitcoin, even though this hasn't happened in traditional finance for probably three decades. There are still market opportunities in Bitcoin where you can be price neutral to the price of Bitcoin and clip a 40% annualized return. One such avenue, which was the most popular trade on the street, was the GBTC trade, the GBTC premium. The GBTC is a closed Bitcoin fund that trades in the stock exchange. And there is a dislocation between the value of the shares and the value of the underlying Bitcoin. So for a long time, $100 worth of GBTC only would have $80 worth of Bitcoin under it. So what institutions were doing is they would borrow Bitcoin from ourselves, from Genesis. They would then contribute the Bitcoin to the fund, wait six months so that their Bitcoin turns into shares. And then they, they put $80 worth of Bitcoin. They get the paper worth $100. They purchase the $80 back and they keep the $20. And, they, and doing this took six months. So if you annualize that rate, that's 40%. You can make $40 over the course of the year. When you're making $40, you pay $10 to borrow that Bitcoin. No problem. That premium has gone from 20% to zero and then, then some negative. So that trade no longer exists. And that was the highest quality trade for institutions. Why? Because GBTC is a regulated fund. And they could borrow the Bitcoins from, from entities such as Genesis. And that was basically like printing money. When this trade got eroded, the demand from these institutions to borrow these Bitcoins dropped. That trade was probably 40% of the flow, 50% of the flow. So that wipes that out. And then what's left are opportunities that perhaps don't have a 20% premium, but have a 6% premium or a 5% premium. And so what that does is that those high quality institutions will tell you, hey, Lenin, I want to keep the borrow. There's still opportunities in the market. I'm not getting 40 like I used to. I'm getting 10. So my payment's going from X, you know, just for you, for hypothetical points, you know, we're going from paying you 10 to paying you three. And, uh, and that's what we can pay you. And if you don't want to work with us, take the Bitcoin back and go find someone else. And so what, what, what companies then like us have to say is, okay, well, well, that, the top institutions that we've been working for for years 
are telling us that the market's changed and they can no longer do this. We have two options. We lower the rates and have a hard conversation with our clients, or we go find a different counterparty that'll pay us higher and takes higher risk and we don't know them. We decided to go have a hard conversation with our clients and not change the risk profile of our business because that's what the market is telling us. Uh, we, we don't want to swim against the market. If we try to swim against the market, that's when you start taking on the risk because that's when you go off the rails. So uh, we're not the only lenders that have slashed rates. I would argue that any institutional lender worth their salt has had to slash rates. If you haven't seen this rate slash, then they are certainly not doing the same things we are doing. And that should be very clear to you because we don't want to lower rates. <laughs> we did them because we had to. If other people aren't doing that, then there's two options. They're not doing what we're doing or really, really that's the only option. If they're doing what we're doing and, or other than that, then they're just paying out of pocket and that can't be sustained. No, none of those answers are sustainable. Okay, but, but you're still paying uh, 6% on one Bitcoin, two Bitcoin, but two. then you have it, right? Yeah, and, and I can tell you why that happens. We said this in our communications to our clients. The market does not support paying an overall six to the book, the book in general. The way most platforms like ourselves and, and many like us are distributed is most people don't have two Bitcoin and their balances. That's the majority of the people. So, so you get into this argument where it's, it's almost a bit of game theory, right? Like if I go to market with a overall two and a quarter, which is what we pay to balances over two, well, then our clients that don't have up to one Bitcoin are going to go to the platforms that are dangling these carrots on them to pay six uh, because they're doing that, not because the market supports it, it's because they want our clients. And so for us, we basically had to look at, the, at, at our, our balances and who would be impacted by the rate. And we drew the line at a point in time where it is sustainable to let in, so a rate that we can afford to pay and not going to break the bank so that our clients are happy and that they stay earning the same rate that they would at any of our competitors. And we basically, to our larger clients, we had to essentially have a hard conversation and tell them, we can pay you the six of the first two, but we just can't pay you the six in the whole thing. The market doesn't support it. And so it's, it's a bit of a strategic decision because I'll tell you right now, no one's making money paying 6% on Bitcoin right now. <laughs> uh, it's a decision that you make to keep your clients and, uh, and to essentially have them on the platform so they can engage with other products that do create revenue, like loans, trading, et cetera, whatever that may be. And I don't like this. I, I honestly, I'm not a fan of tiers. We never had them. We just brought it in because we, it, was a, it was a decision that we were forced to do because of the market conditions. But I don't like this idea of, of having tiers. I don't think it's sustainable because I think you just end up creating an endless number of tiers after all the tiers overflow uh, because of your cost of capital, right? And so I think where the industry is going is, and where I think this will end up is, if you want a flexible in and out savings, always send, you can always take out, you're going to get a certain rate. If you want to get a higher rate, you're going to have to say, okay, we're, we're going to open up opportunities. So for example, we see an opportunity in the market and say, hey, we can deploy you know, 10,000 Bitcoin to earn 5% for 90 days. So can we open up this note to get it subscribed for 10,000 Bitcoin? Sure. Everybody can jump in, subscribe, the note gets filled, you deploy that capital. And if that note where to go bust, it doesn't risk everyone else. 
right? The, the, the issue becomes when you start trying to push this higher rate on the whole group and you try to make this into this huge black box. And so I, I think you need to start siloing the risks so that the overall profile of the business doesn't get hurt while at the same time giving more optionality to your clients that want to earn higher rates and perhaps take on that bit of extra risk. What I've seen a lot, even on the comments that I get through my blog and, and such, people are asking, when Bitcoin has been on average rising to 100% over the past 10 years, why should I risk the custody for 2%? And I think it's a legitimate question, which also makes me worried about the longevity of platforms like yours. If this, if, if this percentage will never get higher again, what do you think about that? So surprisingly, the, the, our balances have, has, you know, we almost didn't really see a material change after the rate announcement, because I think clients understand that we're doing this so that the business is sustainable in the long term. I'm not blaming you. Of course, I understand your position and I, I, yeah. I am on your side. I mean, if I were a lender on Leden, I would want to see the rate dropping given the GPTC premium, which lenders also know about, you know, they've seen the change. They know that the rate is, is bound to go down. But at, at some point you ask the question, no, should I yeah, yeah. risk the custody or not? So I think that question, and again, my math mind is kicking in for a second. And so, okay, you're saying Bitcoin is appreciating for 200% each year, right? That means that the 6% you're getting today is actually 18%, 12% next year. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it makes sense, right? Like uh, Bitcoin's Bitcoin. Uh, and, and if you can earn additional amount of Bitcoin by, by taking a risk that you are comfortable with, then that's an option that I think is going to be an option that many people in the market are going to want as long as they're comfortable with the risk. Because if you're going to apply that 200% principle to the underlying, you also have to apply it to the interest you would have earned. And that effectively, in dollar terms, triples uh, the rate that you're seeing quoted. So even at 2%, you're still talking about six. That is probably, I don't know, 100 times more than you can get in a bank today in Bitcoin. So... Everyone's going to have their preference, but but I think you know that thought is is important to bring it back to like you're you're getting more Bitcoin, and that Bitcoin's going up two hundred percent. Makes sense, and that's that's the conclusion I arrived at as well. It's also why I love the concept of trying to earn in Bitcoin for the future, Appreciate not that. for now. <laughs> exactly, Mauricio. Do, do I I understand well that possibly this was due to the surge? and the price of Bitcoin and the flooding, you know, of, of the requests that, that you're getting. Now, once things settle down and it sort of plateaus, I think that then the same situation that we had some months ago will return in terms of interest. What do you think? Uh, it, it may. So one part of the borrowing world that has been entirely dormant over this rally is the number of institutions that were borrowing Bitcoin to take a short position on Bitcoin. That use case has essentially disappeared. No, nobody's really shorting Bitcoin in this environment. So when we hit a particular plateau point, there is a scenario where the, the desks get a bit more active 
taking because here now you have two situations. Now you have corporations that have giant amounts of Bitcoin under treasuries that may want to hedge that position. So they could potentially hedge that position by you know by put options or by selling the futures. But there's also another very clean way of hedging that Bitcoin, which is borrowing an equal amount and shorting it. And that way you're just price neutral. And there's two types of shorting. There's the hedging shorting and there's directional shorting, right? The two are different, but in a way they're, they're similar. I see a world where Bitcoin plateaus, where the market activity for borrowing to hedge or borrowing to directly short, I think that market picks up. And that may help the rates in Bitcoin, even as the underlying value of Bitcoin may be tapering or perhaps dropping a little bit. Am I right in stating that uh, with regards to borrowing, uh, we go to the other product, uh, one of the other products that you have. This is not going to affect the rate because in reality you are lending cash, no? Correct. In essence, it affects our cash rates, the rates we pay on dollars. So how much people want our loans directly affects how much we can pay people in the USDC account. So as you can see, today we're paying 12.5% on our USDC savings account. And that represents the demand for dollars that we have because the demand for loans has been astronomical. And so the more people want these loans, the higher we could pay USDC. If, if market tapers, people aren't borrowing as much, the rates on USDC might come down, the rates in Bitcoin might come up. So it's balanced between the two. I have one question about borrowing and then it would lead us to the B2X and I think that would be a good place to wrap up. With regards to borrowing, we've seen a lot of talk about, of course, keeping Bitcoin, but also about the tax optimization strategy of not selling. Now, my question is, if I were to say, make a big capital purchase, say buy a house, how do you see this competing against the traditional way of obtaining the finance for buying a house from the banks? Does it make sense in this scenario at all, or is it something that's more apt to trading and that would um, bring us to the B2X uh, product as well? Uh, it's a fascinating question. So the, the amount of inquiries that we're getting recently for Bitcoiners that want to take Bitcoin back loans to buy houses is something I had never expected. Uh, it seems to be the sort of most trendy uh, trade on the street right now is to essentially get a loan on your Bitcoin and buy a house, buy a cottage. It's actually something that we're seeing very often. Whenever we see a need in the market, we try to move really, really fast to serve it and to create a product that makes that process very, very easy. But um, we're going through, I believe, a bit of an inflection point where historically, for generations, most people get had the majority of their wealth in their home. That was their sort of anchor. And I think what Bitcoin has created is this this new generation of wealth where the bulk of your assets are in Bitcoin. And so whereas before you would go to the bank to diversify your portfolio because you needed to get a borrow on that house, increased line of credit to go buy something else. Now you're coming to Bitcoin financial institutions to essentially finance your asset diversification. And so we're catering to that demographic essentially really well. They love our services. They find a lot of value in them. And I don't think that they are going to, one will replace the other. Like I was saying earlier, I think they will end up merging in some way. And you're going to have 
some variation. I don't want to. I don't want to spill the beans now. We're working on something really cool, but uh, but that you know we are definitely exploring this area very very closely. Sounds sounds very interesting. To go to the B two X product, which I think is one of the most unique products in the space, and certainly the one that jumps out to me, just looking at your website as a first time user or visitor. Like in a nutshell, who is using this and why? It's a bit of a uh, a vague answer, but the people that are using it is anybody that has Bitcoin but wants more, and uh, and they want to use the Bitcoin they already have to purchase more Bitcoin. Um, you know, a lot of people have a Bitcoin, and you know their cash flows from their monthly payments versus their life it doesn't really give them enough room to just keep adding to it over time. But when they see a good opportunity in the market, when the price is down a significant amount, or they feel like it's about to go higher, etc., they will come to let in, they will place a B2X trade, and they will essentially have twice as much Bitcoin backed by a dollar loan. Obviously, the way any loan works backed by Bitcoin is if the value of the collateral drops, then we may ask you to send more collateral. So then obviously the risk on any loan product is the value of Bitcoin or the underlying dropping and you not having the resources to send that additional collateral to avoid your Bitcoin from being sold to pay off the loan. So what what I always like to tell clients is, you know, they ask us, you know, well, you know, when should I take out a B2X? Should I put X amount? Should I put Y amount? And the way I answer that is just plan yourself accordingly because we want you to be here. We want you to walk out of Lenin with more Bitcoin, not less. That's the whole point. So in order to do that, you need to make sure that if needed, you can keep that loan in a healthy standing so that we don't have to take action because we hate doing that. The last thing we want is to close out a loan that took us so long or hard, we worked so hard to originate. So we want to work with our people so that they don't get overstretched. They don't take risks that they can't kind of respond to. When it goes up, it's beautiful. It's all, it's all yours to keep. But we always like to think of, you know, we want our main focus is for people to walk out of let in with more Bitcoin than they walked in with. Makes sense. So does this differ in any significant way from going long with leverage on a typical crypto exchange? It does, yes. So uh, a couple of things that are unique about Ledin, we physically purchased that Bitcoin. That actually, that Bitcoin exists. It's bought, it's there, it's an irreversible purchase that we do. The second unique thing about Ledin is that you can pay off your loan in dollars. And when you pay off your loan in dollars, you never sold any Bitcoin. In most places, the sale of the Bitcoin is what triggers a taxable event. So B2X is a unique attribute that you can have Two Bitcoin, send it in a month, you know, say Bitcoin's 50K, you had your two Bitcoin, you doubled it, you got another two Bitcoin. So you had four Bitcoin in total, loan for 100 grand. Bitcoin moons to $100,000, right? Now you have $400,000 backing a $100,000 loan. But even that, you know, even selling a portion of that Bitcoin to pay off that 100K, that's a taxable event. So what do people do is they say, oh, well, hey, I'm going to re-up my line of credit for an extra 100K, which is not a taxable event, and I'm going to send it to you to pay off your loan and get my Bitcoin out, which is never a taxable event. And so the, the, the ability of B2X to essentially pay up in dollars and withdraw the Bitcoin creates another advantage from a tax standpoint. Fantastic, yeah. Awesome. Therefore, is, uh, is the interest paid tax deductible if you eventually sell the Bitcoin? <laughs> 
You're a smart accountant, Joseph. Uh, <laughs> It, it depends on the jurisdiction, but yes, if you, because the, the loan proceeds are used to reinvest in, in several jurisdictions, that can actually be discounted. The, the interest payments from that loan can actually be discounted from your taxes. So obviously I have to caveat this with, this is not tax advice. We're not allowed to give tax advice. Please consult with your local tax professional, all this stuff, but you are right, Joseph. Yeah. I mean, from, from me, I mean, we can go on for a few hours more, but I prefer leaving the, the, the rest for maybe another future episode in a few months' time. It's been really interesting. Uh, again, thanks a lot for sharing your experience. It's, it's quite a unique journey that you have. Uh, and also what you're doing here with Leden is, is really interesting. I don't know if my dad had any closing comments. Well, I've been fascinated with the knowledge, the deep knowledge that Mauricio has uh, on Bitcoin. And it's fascinating, this this product that, that they have and uh, this platform. It's, it is great. Um, it has been a pleasure meeting you, Mauricio. And I look forward to another podcast with you, actually. Yeah, likewise. I, I love this father and son uh, combo. It's actually <laughs> one of the funnest spots I've been on. So <laughs> congrats to you both. And uh uh, you're, you're doing great stuff on the content side. So congrats again. Thanks. And Mauricio, just close this off. Tell people where they can find you and anything else you want to share about Leden or what's coming up next for the platform. Yeah. Uh, so our website is leden.io, L-E-D-N.io. We're pretty active on social media at HODL with Leden. We are hiring quite a lot of people actually. So uh, if you check out our careers page and you see anything you like, you can email me, mauricio at leaden.io. And lastly, I can be found on Twitter at cryptonomist with an A at the end. Thanks again, both of you for having me. Thanks, Mauricio. Thanks. So that's a wrap for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And as usual, I ask you to leave a five-star review on iTunes if you like the show and all the other shows we've produced so far. Please let us know if there is any other topic that you'd like us to tackle or platform to review. We're very open for hearing from you, your opinions, whether you like the shows we're producing. And yeah, just if, you, if you've been listening to this show for the past few episodes or the first episode that you listen, we'd really, really appreciate if you even just get in touch and tell us how you're finding it what you'd like us to improve and things like that so the email is podcast at mastermind.fm again podcast at mastermind.fm and you can also find find us on twitter at mastermind.fm that's it for today from us and see you in the next episode